I feel like so many women I know will struggle with a salary negotiation. And sometimes it's down to, you know, not really understanding your self-worth, but also a lot of the time it's down to not really knowing what the other person's key objectives are. And often it isn't just to get you for the lowest price possible. There's other things built into that. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. Today, Emma Greed joins me on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the founder and CEO of Good American, a business she launched alongside partner Khloe Kardashian in 2016. Good American is a fashion brand that champions body positivity, offering clothing in a full and inclusive size range. Before founding Good American, Emma started and ran the entertainment marketing agency ITB Worldwide. Emma, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about everything that you've done. But first, let's jump into skimming your resume. So my first job was when I was like 12 and I had a paper round and it gave me my first taste of like my own cash, which was just wonderful. Um, And I feel like I just haven't stopped working, you know, since then. I went through like a whole stint in my life working in retail. And I had always really been about fashion. You know, I loved that world. I come from a place where, you know, it was really devoid of any kind of fashion or glamour. And so I found myself really gravitating towards, you know, just the beauty and the supermodels and the brands, you know, as I was growing up, it was all about Versace and Chanel. And I found myself working in designer stores in London. And then my first kind of proper job after coming out of college, I studied business at the London College of Fashion and um, went straight into fashion show production and found myself in this really odd little niche. Because in London, I guess, you know, there was this amazing, you know, London Fashion Week where all of these brilliant designers were, but nobody really had the money to put on their shows. So I ended up in this strange little niche of sponsorship and kind of creating brand collaborations for the great and the good of the British fashion industry. And that's really where I cut my teeth. And I think that when I think about what it is that I do today and where I found my success, it all really started in those early days of being a production company and, you know, really learning how to bridge the gap between, you know, the creative businesses that fashion are and, and more commercial brands. And so, yeah, that, that was it for me. That's, that was the beginning. Love it. Um, what is something that people would be surprised to know about you? Oh, I mean, I guess people would probably be surprised to know like how much of a homemaker I am, because I guess maybe that's not something that you always associate with somebody who's an entrepreneur. Like my favorite thing to do is, you know, cooking and making things nice at the house. Like I'm an absolute festive freak. Like the idea that I get Thanksgiving on top of Christmas now that I'm, you know, living in America, it could not be any better for me. I'm like, I get to do that twice. Like, it's like Christmas practice to me. So right now, that's all I think about is like, what is my Thanksgiving menu? What is my table going to look like? 
that that is my jam. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. So I love opening up our questions with entrepreneurs like yourself by talking about your childhood because our childhoods shape all of us and informs ultimately who we are and, and how we make decisions. And I want you to kind of paint a picture for us about how you grew up and how you think that's shaped you. Yeah, it's a great question. and I couldn't agree more. I feel like so much of me and how I behave, how I treat people, what I've chosen to do comes from my childhood. And, you know, I had a really great childhood. I grew up pretty kind of, I was poor, basically, in East London, in a very kind of deprived area. And I say it so blatantly as that is because, you know, it wasn't only devoid of glamour, it was completely devoid of opportunities. Everybody in that community had lived there their entire life. um, And you seemingly couldn't get out of it. There was, you know, a huge lack of opportunity, a huge lack of, you know, education. And I saw for myself, you know, my mother who really kind of broke through and managed to create something else for herself. So she was a single mother with four children. And my mum found herself, you know, working in the stock exchange, becoming a trader, having a job for 20 plus years at Morgan Stanley. And that for me was you know, it was just like a gateway. Suddenly I could see that, you know, you could create with with a lot of hard work and a lot of tenacity. And if you really did that and you could get all of that to pay off, then you could really, really change your outlook. And so very, very early on, I, I really believed that the harder I worked, the more likely I would be to get myself out of what I saw as a pretty kind of dire situation. But of course, when you live and you grow up like that, doing something, you know, I could understand it if you were a doctor or a lawyer or going to banking, fashion just didn't seem like a way out for me. And so there were times in my life where I definitely thought, oh, am I on the wrong path? Which is ultimately why I went and studied business at the London College of Fashion, because I believe that if I could set that foundation in business and have this specialism in fashion, that at least it would ground me that if all that fun bit didn't work out, I'd still have the basics of business and I could go and, you know, run a construction company or something. (laughs) So I'm going to read you a bullet that was in my prep for this interview. Oh, please. (laughs) When Emma started at the production company, she learned where her skills actually were, negotiation, contracts, partnerships. I don't think that I've ever read prep on anyone where it was that what they really enjoyed doing and were really good at was negotiation. (laughs) I I, I, like stopped in my tracks when I read that. I have so many questions. What do you mean you're really good at negotiating? How did you figure that out? Kind of just like, just start in the beginning. I, you know, I love your questions because nobody's ever asked me that before. And it's a great question because, you know, where I came from, it was sometimes it was just dangerous, right? And you'd have to just get yourself out of a situation. And the way that you would do that was by negotiating, by like figuring out with someone, like, where can we get to a mutually advantageous position? And so that was part of my personality. Like, Back in the day, in my childhood years, it was called hustle. Like you would just hustle to get to where you needed to go. And as I grew up, I understood that negotiation wasn't about beating somebody so hard against the wall that you get what you want. It was about actually finding this beautiful middle ground. And what I understood when you work with very, very creative people, they have such a specific point of view and they're not always able to see the other side. And so I always saw it as my job to let 
each side see one another and understand one another. And so when I talk about negotiation, it really is about storytelling and building a picture of what's going on and then allowing each side to see the point of view of the other side. And so, you know, it's not like I love sitting there in, you know, word in the track changes and like literally like negotiating something. What I love is the journey that you can bring two sides on to try to understand something. And when I think about Good American and and how my career has kind of led me to this place, it's always about showing people like the light, showing people how we can all move forward together and, you know, create taking something that seemingly is really, really difficult, like creating clothes in <laughs> like a billion sizes uh, with factories that have just never done that before. But then, you know, really showing people why you're doing something and what the big advantage of it is and how it's going to be great on the other side. And so that's what I mean by loving the negotiation. And I think that's been a really, really pivotal part of my life and my success that I'm able to see it that way. So from talking to people on the show, from like my own experience, talking to my friends, I think that negotiation is hard for people for a few different reasons. One is it becomes so complicated and so big in your head that it's actually hard to like see the chessboard, so to speak. I think another is that it can feel really intimidating to like push back on somebody or something, especially when the stakes feel high. I think another area is like, how to play your hand. You know, I remember I have um, a relative who once told me, he was like, every negotiation has three rounds. Like when you go past that, that third round, like the deal's dead, like make sure, but like, you can't accept the first round just like in your head when no matter what it is, if you're negotiating, like you're going to buy something, a deal, a raise, like whatever it is, the details actually don't matter. How do you kind of clean the slate in your mind and, and stay organized and focused in your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's getting organized and focused in your thoughts, right? That is like the key thing, like knowing what you're coming to get and also understanding where you're willing to give. And I think about it in my, you know, in my career, it was always like around salary negotiations, but I would really be completely organized. Like, what am I trying to get out of this? And what am I willing to walk away without, right? So that's like the starting point, having that in your mind and being completely clear about that. Then it's the education piece, like really knowing what you're doing, what are you talking about? What are the benchmarks? What else are you bringing to the table, to the conversation? And have you actually looked at the space, at the business, at the landscape, if it's for you personally? Are you coming to the table having a full picture of the information? And then for me, again, it's always about going on to the other side. Like, what is the person across the table from you thinking, what is their point of view, what is their key objective, and how do you align the first part with the third part, right? And that's where I think the beauty in everything is. At the end of the day, I feel like so many women I know will struggle with a salary negotiation. And sometimes it's down to, you know, not really understanding your self-worth, but also a lot of the time it's down to not really knowing what the other person's key objectives are. And often it isn't just to get you for the lowest price possible, there's other things built into that. And I think that just coming with like creative solutions can be so helpful. Like we're so great as women at multitasking and thinking at things, you know, in 15 different ways that I try to take that point of view to any negotiation. Like there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. Like how many ways can you come up with it and think about it? And perhaps you're going to help the other side in being a little bit creative around your thinking 
and seeing you entirely differently. And so I always think about that. Like if somebody is pushing back on me, I'm not like, oh my God, they're pushing back on me. I'm like, what are they not seeing? And how can I make them see that? And I think that's really important. How do you not lose your confidence? (laughs) Well, the truth is you do lose your confidence, right? Like, let's just be honest. We're all human. And at a certain point, we're pre- disposed to focusing in on the negative and like the one thing that that person said to you in that conversation that like struck a nerve. Um, And so the point is that you do lose confidence, but understanding that that's actually part of the process, you shouldn't allow that to change the parameters or the benchmark of what you're actually trying to do. But I also think when you're researched, and this is a big part of it going to that middle step, you can also really look at things factually, removing all the emotion out of the situation and being like, no, this is actually what it is. And this is what somebody is worth or the thing is worth or I am worth. Um, And so I think sometimes just removing yourself, taking yourself out of the emotional part of it, um, that's how you can ultimately not lose the confidence. What's the last thing you negotiated? I feel like I negotiate every every day. Um, whether it's whether it's somebody else's salary, because now I'm on that side of things. It could be that. It could be, you know, a, a fabric. Actually, this morning, I was literally on the phone about a new category we're launching, negotiating margins. And that's what I did this morning. It was a two-hour phone call. Did you get what you wanted? <laughs> of course. <laughs> you ultimately ended up starting your own company and, you know, and constantly pitching and selling and cold calling people got really good at relationship management and networking. Talk to us just about like building your network and fostering that. It's really interesting because the way I interview people now and I hear about how they, you know, furiously build their network, are constantly connecting, or on social media, are doing the rounds at various conferences. That was never my thing. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be doing this in London, where you literally will bump, you know, it's much like New York, you bump into people on the street, you'll be in a bar, you'll meet someone and they'll be useful to you in some way, shape or form. It's not like in LA where, you know, we were socially distanced in LA before COVID, right? You never see anyone you don't plan to meet. And so a lot of it was very happenstance for me, but I definitely made an effort to put myself in the right context and I did anything. And when I tell you anything, I would take any job to be in the company that I thought was going to get me to where I needed to be. So going back to these days of working in event production, that sounds wonderful. The reality of it was that I was packing production boxes full of gaffer tape and Stanley knives and all the sorts of things that you would need to make whichever event we were doing a success. And uh, it wasn't anywhere near as glamorous. But I think that, again, that hustle part of my mentality just kind of clicked in. And I would go the extra mile and be the smiling person who's still there at 10 and offer my services. And, you know, I was very, very naive when it came to actually building a network. But what I did was always did a really, really good job. And then when I was fortunate enough to be in a situation where you were, you know, taking meetings with people or had an opportunity to be at a conference, I'd be very strategic about the way I went into those things. I'd look at the list and I'd find the people that I wanted to meet and I'd memorize what they looked like. And then I'd find stuff out about them. And this is like, you know, literally you'd be like haphazardly Googling around. I don't even know if LinkedIn 
existed then. But, you know, you try to find something out about somebody. And then I would literally just walk up to a speaker and try to strike up a conversation. Um, And again, that was really how I built my network, just a mixture of hustle, being available, and then just, you know, ballsily walking up to people. When you craft sort of your cold pitch, I think a lot of times, and we've talked a lot about this, and we get asked this all the time, like, literally, what do you say? You either make your call, you write an email, you're probably writing an email, but like, literally, like, how do you craft what you want to get out in as short of a time as possible? Where do you start? So it's really interesting. I mean, I'm a very face-to-face person. So I think, again, I'm always thinking about how am I approaching someone? Is it an email? Am I trying to get someone on the phone? Am I trying to, you know, find some kind of mutual acquaintance to make that introduction or whatever it might be? In the business that I'm in now, you know, it's so interesting because we do something that not a lot of other people do. And so that in of itself opens a lot of doors. People want to work with us because they know that we are changing the business, changing the industry for the better. And therefore that on its own just opens a lot of doors. Again, I think it's about knowing your own strengths. Like I'm a very good in-person person. person. (laughs) And I've worked with a lot of people that are not that good in person. And so better, you know, being on the phone or sending emails. For me, it was always about making that personal connection. And that's how I do things. I'm like, I'm almost ignoring the thing that I'm supposed to be doing and trying to make a connection in any way, shape or form that I can. When somebody does a cold outreach to you now, I mean, what gets your attention? You know, it's so interesting because every now and again, one of those cold emails will strike you. And what I find so interesting, I mean, I had one just, maybe it was Monday this week, somebody who emailed me about a specific digital service, but she had really done her research and she pointed something out on our site. And I was like, oh, that is so right. And again, it was just somebody that had, you know, done their research, gone the extra mile, said, this is what's wrong and here's how we can help fix it. And of course, I passed her straight on to our CRO and I was like, let this girl help you fix this, you know? And so I think sometimes just people really, again, just doing their research and and going that extra mile. Like, is she supposed to like be helping fix my problems before we've even taken them on as an agency? Probably not, but it was a great tactic. Let's talk about the Kardashians. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. All right. My favorite people in the world. First of all, how did you get connected to to Chris? So prior to running Good American, I had this entertainment marketing agency for 10 years. And I've said it so many times before, but if you're not, you know, at that point in time, and actually still now, if you're not in business with the Kardashians, you literally weren't in business. And so I built a longstanding relationship with Kris Jenner. We would meet every, I'd say twice a year in Paris around fashion week and have a little dinner. And so I was on first name terms with Chris, having done a lot of kind of commercial branding work with her and members of the family. And so when I had the idea for Good American, I was always clear it was Chloe. I was like, Chloe's my girl. I'd never met her. I knew her as much as anyone knew her, like through the show. You know, like we all feel like we know them. And that's part of the beauty of that family. But no, I'd never met her before. I'd met and worked with other members of the family. And when I started to make the pitch to Chris, she said, look, you just need to come here and talk to Chloe. You know, she makes her own business decisions. So listen, like, I cannot imagine the volume of requests that come into Chris for one of her daughters. I literally sent one yesterday. Totally. What do you think you said or or put in front of Chloe or, or how you presented it that you think made her pay attention? 
Well, look, I think it, you have to be realistic, right? Because you're right. You're talking about someone who's inundated with opportunities and for good reason. And so I had an established relationship. It wasn't like I just knocked on the door and they happened to answer my email. I had a reputation um, for creating value for talent. And so that was something that kind of, you know, opened the door for me. I think what was interesting to Chloe, again, because at that point in time, and she and all the sisters are constantly inundated with opportunities to, you know, have equity participation in businesses. What got Chloe was what we were doing. And she was personally moved by it. And personally affected by it. You know, she was bigger than all of her sisters. And she said very publicly, she was always left out. She'd get onto a shoot, you know, there'd be racks for Kim and racks for Courtney and like, hey, see if you can squeeze into this girl. And so she had been personally affected by what I was talking about. You know, this idea that the large majority of women are completely locked out of the fashion conversation because of their size. And when I started Good American, I was so clear about what the opportunity was. I was like, look, like this happens every day and it's so mainstream and it's so ridiculous. And the fashion industry isn't even interested in acknowledging the problem. And Chloe understood that and literally finished my sentences. In that first meeting, I walked out thinking, all right, this is done. She is in. We're going to be business partners together. And, and lo and behold, it happened just like that because Chloe was smart enough to realize the opportunity, but she was also on the back end of, of receiving that kind of, you know, negative side of what the fashion industry ha has and still is. When I was reading about how you launched, I, I will say like full disclosure, like retail is not an area that I like know that much about. You launched denim with Nordstrom and you made Nordstrom carry the whole line with every size on the floor. Now, I don't know much about like how buying orders are made and, and how that would normally work. So I really would love to understand like why you required that and how unique or not unique that was. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, it was entirely unique. We were the only brand that Nordstrom carry out of all the thousands of brands that they carry that had ever actually even pitched it. When we pitched the idea to Pete Nordstrom, they'd never even heard of that idea before. So it took some explaining. And that was, again, part of the beauty of being direct to consumer. We were hell-bent on doing things our way. And when we started, we were getting a lot of pushback wherever we would go, whether it was to a factory or it was to a PR agency or it was to a retail, like they, everyone would push back on us. And so we honestly started Good American. We were like, okay, we're going to have these principles and we are not going to waver from those principles. And one of them right from the beginning was all the sizes all the time. You either took everything that we did or you couldn't take anything. And that really resulted in like a lot of really hard decisions. There were big buys that came in on day two of the company that we said, no to because, you know, certain retailers were saying, well, we'll do sizes two through 10. And we were like, no, like you're missing the entire point. Well, we don't have the customer. And so with Nordstrom in the beginning, what you had was an incredibly willing partner that saw the vision, that understood the principles, but they were willing to put their money where their mouth is because when you take, you know, what was at the time 14 sizes, we've since really expanded our range into going right through to a plus size 32. And we also invented our own size to slip in the middle there somewhere, size 15. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> I love that. That's my, that's my favorite, size 15. But, you know, it, it was an undertaking. It's a financial undertaking for them because you usually buy six or seven sizes from a brand. And we were saying, well, we need you to double that. And we're a startup and we don't have any experience in the manufacturing of, of denim. And so it was a big bet that really, really paid off for everybody. 
So you just said you invented a size. Yeah. What does that mean? What do you mean? I'm so clever. We're going to just call this episode. Emma is so oh, clever. I'm so clever. No, it's the opposite of being clever. It was like being a rookie and not understanding everything. And so what happens when you start your own business, any entrepreneur will know, like you spend so much time in the weeds. And on the weekend, I literally read reviews because I'm obsessed. Like our customers have the best feedback and the best ideas of life. Um, And so I'd be in the reviews and I was starting to understand these returns patterns. And at that point, there was nobody in like data analytics at Good American. So I would sift through things and I would call my head of e-com and be like, why do we get all these returns? And the same thing came back over and over again. I'm too big for a size 14 and yet I'm too small for a size 16. And when I started to look at that, the data was clear. Like those, between those sizes, the returns were 50% larger than anywhere else in the business or within the size range. So I spoke to e-com, they didn't understand it. I spoke to design, they didn't understand it. I then spoke to our tech team, who are these like glorious women that work upstairs, I'm pointing upstairs in my office, that have the most experience of anyone. And they're the people that literally make the pattern because we make all of our own patterns for every garment. And when I explained it to them, they were like, oh yeah, like that's obvious because there's a jump. You go from a Missy standard sizing range to a plus size range. And obviously the grading is different in each of those buckets. And therefore there's this big gaping hole in the middle. And immediately without even thinking, I said, oh cool, well like let's make a size 15. And they laughed, oh don't be so ridiculous, you can't do that. And I was like, well, why? And they said, well, it's not, it's not a standard measurement. The factory won't understand it. And plus it sounds like a junior size and blah, blah. And I was like, nah, you know, I'm kind of the boss. So please, could we try to do it? And can you try to make sense of it? And, and it was so cool because literally like four days later, somebody showed me an email that had come back from the factory going, have you got your specs incorrect? You know, it was like, see, we told you, Emma, it's not possible. Um, but actually what we did was created this size and explained it to people. And I think it's so wonderful that in business now, we have like these social media platforms where we can literally tell our customers stories and we can say, look, we're listening to what you're saying. You're making all of these returns. And so we worked with a focus group of women that had made those returns on creating size 15 to understand, like, is there even a market for this? Lo and behold, I think it's, it goes between my third and fourth best-selling size on a monthly basis. Size 15 is a thing. It doesn't just work. It's really, really popular. And my bet is that the 25 million women in this country are a size 15. They're not quite regular size, regular, and I'm doing inverted commas, but they're not plus. They're right in the middle. What is Chloe's involvement in day-to-day? Oh, she's amazing. So we do very different things, Chloe and I, right? I'm a more traditional, hands-on, operational CEO, and Chloe is much, much more involved in product, creative, marketing. Of course, she's an absolute kind of digital social whiz with one of the biggest platforms on. And so she, what I think Chloe's superpower, if you ask me that, is that she's she's amazing at kind of connecting with her market. Like she really understands again, I'm doing air quotes, the average girl, like what she wants, how she thinks, how she thinks about herself. And so I think Chloe's been really instrumental in the way that we think about customers and the way that we talk to our customers. And certainly in that, you know, feedback loop of how we work with the audience and our community to ultimately decide where we go in Good American. Because I think as a CEO, you can get these 
grand ideas about what you should be doing or, you, you know, you're very reflective looking at what everybody else is doing. And we've never done that at Good American. We're like, hey, what do you want next? <laughs> and most of the time they tell us like really clearly. And Chloe really taught us that. You know, she was like, I'll ask people on my Instagram. And we were like, great, like, let us know. And she'd come back and go, well, you know, 60,000 people said. <laughs> We'd be like, that's a good enough focus group for me. <laughs> I was going to pull some girls from around the office. And so that's really what happened, you know. It's, um, she's been instrumental in the way the business actually functions. And, and, you know, for me, she's a great partner. So we talk a lot, you know, especially because I'm usually with my co-host, Danielle, my co-founder, and she's on maternity leave right now. But we, you know, have talked a lot on this show, given that our kind of unique co-CEO model around finding a business partner and uh, have talked to other co-founders and and business partners on the show um, when it's worked, when it hasn't. Talk to me, just, you know, take the Kardashian-ness away from it and kind of the excitement. Like, how did you know that Chloe was the right business partner for you? And then what are sort of the things you do to keep the partnership healthy and in check? Yeah, no, and it's a really good question, especially when you think about COVID and like not having the immediacy of like contact all the time right now. I think I really knew that I could work with Chloe because, again, when I pitched this business to her, I was pregnant. And, you know, I remember kind of sheepishly being like, you know, this is my second baby and I worked right through and, you know, like kind of, again, trying to explain to her that I was going to put everything into this business despite the fact that I was about to have a baby. And she kind of looked at me like as if to say, what are you talking about? She was like, Emma, like there's someone having a baby in my family all the time and it hasn't stopped us <laughs> from doing anything. And so I was like, oh, that's my kind of girl. Like she gets it. And Chloe and I, I think it, it says everything about our relationship. We've been really, really honest with one another. We both have entirely different strengths and we both play to those strengths. And we also don't try to meddle. Like Chloe's never going to talk to me about logistics and warehousing. Like she doesn't know that part of the business and she'll be the first person to say that. But similarly, I don't try to like school her on social media strategy because she's she's much better at it than me. So I think finding somebody that respects not your point of view, but your strengths and really understands where you start and stop. And we are both like painfully honest you know it's like we don't try to put up a show for one another it kind of like is what it is and we've both had babies like as we started the business there's no sooner was you know that I finished my pregnancy with Lola that that Chloe was then pregnant and that was a part of our lives that was you know so important and we both supported each other through that and they were both you know again it was like the startup phase of Good American and then like a year in when everything was amazing and kind of all the opportunities were coming our way and so we have each other's back and I think if you can just as business partners ultimately just be really truthful to one another you're going to figure it out then there's loads of other stuff of course that goes into it but I think the bottom line for us is just that we have a baseline of being super honest and that makes it work okay we're going to move into our lightning round segment are you ready oh I hope so here we go Morning person or night owl? Morning. Last TV show you binge watched? Oh, what is it? I'm watching that one with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant right oh, now. Do the Undoing. It's so good. What is the worst professional mistake you've made? Oh, goodness me. I make them all the time. I swear a lot. So back in the day, I would be in meetings, especially when I was London-based and I used to come, you know, you'd be at Estee Lauder. And I remember just making such a gaffe of 
you know, being excited about something, but swearing. And everyone just thought I was stupid because of that. And so now I've cleaned my potty mouth just a little bit. You know, I still swear a lot. Yeah, but when you do it with an accent, I feel like it tones it down. Uh, <laughs> do you have a pep up, song, like a, you know, pump up song before you go into a negotiation? No, I don't. But I would listen to like something like hip hop and like 90s. Like that would be my vibe. What is something people would be surprised to know about Chloe? I don't know, because I feel like most of the stuff you know about her, like she's the sweetest girl in the world and she's a bloody hard worker. But don't we know that? Like we see her in the gym every day. Different Chloe question. Does Chloe skim? Oh, yes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Emma, such a pleasure to, to hear about your incredible story. Thank you so much for such a fun conversation and coming on the couch. Thank you, Carly. It's so lovely speaking to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 